Good morning, everybody. This is another installment of our weekly Bible study, and I'm filming this on the 2nd of June, and I welcome you to this time together. Please can I ask you to get a Bible uh, on hand. We're going to be looking at a passage from Mark's Gospel, and uh, if you want a pen or paper just to make notes, you can do that. I'll leave that up to you. But we're going to be diving into Mark chapter 3, this passage is one of the readings set for this coming Sunday, the 6th of June, but I've actually chosen to preach on a different one of the lectionary readings, so that's why I'm just going to share a little bit around Mark 3. Um, so if you do tune into the Sunday sermons, then you will note that Mark 3 is the gospel reading that connects with Sunday's um, actual preaching theme. But come, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we set this time aside and invite you through your spirit to minister to us. May your word come alive for us and help us to live it out. In your name we pray. Amen. So today's uh, scripture reading, Mark chapter 3, I read from verse 20 to verse 30. Now, I encourage you to keep listening because at the end of um, this Bible study, we're going to deal with that very interesting topic called the unforgivable sin, which actually crops up in this particular portion of Mark chapter 3. But let's begin in verse 20. When Jesus returned to the house where he was staying, the crowds began to gather again, and soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. Just stopping for a moment there. Um, just give us an indication as to how busy Jesus was. Um, I mean, there have been moments in my life, and I'm sure your life, where you've been caught up at work or in the busyness of doing something where you've forgotten how time has just been marching on, and then you've realized you haven't really had much to eat. Um, now, this seemed to be happening for Jesus and his disciples this particular day. They were busy dealing with the crowds, praying for people, healing people, that they were really um, almost exhausted, I would guess. Verse 21 then carries on and says, When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him home with them. He's out of his mind, they said. Now, I don't think verse 21 um, is speaking just about this particular moment where they were forgetting to eat and were very busy. I think this is probably a buildup of a lot of things happening. Jesus' family would have seen how much his life had changed since he had begun his ministry and the natural way they thought they could protect him was to take him home with them and take him out of the present situation that he was in. I mean, they even got to the point of saying, look, Jesus seems to really be out of his mind. What's happening in his life and what he's doing just doesn't seem to be him. Now, some people, some commentators, have um, asked the question, you know, why was his family saying this? It surely couldn't have been just because of this moment where they were having a very, very busy time. Um, and some of the suggestions that have been put forward uh, make a lot of sense. Like the first one is that Jesus has now left behind a potentially prosperous career in being a carpenter. You know, we always know in the background that Jesus' uh, father, Joseph, was a carpenter and that probably the trade was going to be left for him. And so now Jesus has left behind this, this prosperous business to become what? 
a wandering teacher or a preacher. And uh, in terms of the world's eyes, this would seem to make no sense whatsoever. You know, why would you do that? Um, give up something that is going to be secure and comfortable for something that is, you know, totally the opposite of that. You know, why would you throw away that security? Um, I know that um, certainly in my own experience, although people, I hope they didn't use that phrase that Dalm was out of his mind, but certainly there were some people, friends or maybe even acquaintances who didn't know my full journey when they heard that I was moving from a career of, of being um, a commercial career in chartered accountancy or something like that. I mean, that was my potential career path. Into ministry, some people may have thought to themselves, that doesn't make sense whatsoever. You know, one is going in the one direction and the other is almost completely in the other direction. But I mean, I just need to say before I go to the next part of this, is that when God calls us to something, eventually we have to stop running from that calling and just to submit to that, even though it doesn't make sense to everybody. Um, sometimes we just have to know that we are pleasing and honoring God in that decision, and that's all that really counts in that moment. Another reason why his family may have been saying that he's out of his mind was because he was coming across as almost being, well, not coming across, he was challenging the religious authorities and almost on a collision course with the political leaders of the nation. And so it's almost like his family are saying, doesn't he see the end result? Like we can see from the outside looking in that this is going to end up uh, probably in a very confrontational moment. And so is he out of his mind that he can't see what is going on? And maybe another, another one, just to add before we go to, to the next verse, is that not only had he left the comfort of the carpenter's business on this potential collision course with the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the political leaders, but also he had now formed this religious community, society, which from the outside looking in may have seemed such a strange one because there was this motley crew of fishermen and reformed tax collectors, um, basically just a, a group of ragamuffin, riffraff people that normally wouldn't be called together to be in any kind of religious institution. And so his family, just weighing all these things up, probably thought to themselves, probably thought, you know, Jesus is really losing the plot in this. Anyway, let's carry on at this point. Point to verse 22. It says, But the teachers of the religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. So, this verse, um, interesting because the Pharisees, the religious leaders, um, part of their response to Jesus had to have been jealousy. They saw the miracles taking place. Jesus wasn't one of them per se. And so one of their strategies could have been just to badmouth him. Um, you know, what they didn't understand, they labeled as being something of the other. And so they put a label on it and they said, well, he must be possessed by the devil because he's not of our religious order. He's not a Jew like we are in the sense of, sense of things. So therefore, he's got this power from the other source 
which they then label as being from the devil himself. Now, Jesus, when he hears this, he responds in verse 23. He calls them over and he says to them, by way of using an illustration, an image that they would understand, he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? That's a very good question, isn't it? So, you know, why, if I was filled with the devil or the spirit of the demons and Satan himself, how would I then be able to cast out the demons and the devil in other people? And the Pharisees would have actually seen this take place, particularly with the demon-possessed man and, and other examples. Jesus then says in verse 24, a kingdom at war with itself will collapse. He's speaking about this in terms of the kingdom of the devil, but we can use this verse in many other examples. You could use it even in the sense of a team environment or a family, that when a family or a team or a church is at, is at war with itself, it will collapse. We need the, the unity of, of the Spirit of God to help us to, to stay united and to fulfill the purpose that God calls us to, uh, to live out. But a kingdom or a group of people that's going to be fighting within, they're going to end up collapsing in the end. He carries on verse 25 to say that a home divided against itself is doomed. I mean, that kind of makes sense. And then verse 26, and if Satan is fighting against himself, how can he stand? He will never survive. So it's the same point that he's kind of reiterating verse 23, verse 24, verse 25, and now verse 26. He says it in each one of these verses. He's saying to the Pharisees, look, I hear what you're saying. You're calling me from the devil, that I'm possessed by the devil, and that I'm using the devil's power to cast out these demons. But that makes no sense whatsoever because I really would then be fighting against myself. Then he uses 27, verse 27 as an illustration for them, just to bring his whole point across. He says, let me illustrate this. You can't enter a strong man's house and rob him without first tying him up. Only then can his house be robbed. Now, um, in... In our understanding, as we read this verse, it's, um, we probably are thinking of our own homes and, and possibly robberies or theft taking place in our own house. So, you know, a thief can only come into our homes to steal something if we are either asleep or not at home or we have been subdued in some way. This is the kind of illustration that Jesus is using, except he's saying that if the man or the person in the house is a strong person, the only way a robber is going to get past that person is probably with a few other robbers, and they're going to tie the strong man up so that they're leaving him powerless. He's not able to defend himself or even to come and attack them. And then they can then take their pickings from the house. Jesus is saying that this is what's happening when, when he is using the power of God to, to destroy the power of, 
of Satan. He, he has bound him up, and therefore he is able then to clear out all of the sin and all of the disease and everything else that is in that particular person that has been possessed by the devil. He, when he's been held under the authority of God, that's, Jesus is saying, I have that authority. It's been given to me by my Father. Then we come to verse 28, verse 29, and verse 30, which I think open up some questions for us or maybe have done in the past. It says this, I assure you that any sin can be forgiven, including blasphemy. So if you just stop there at the end of verse 28, that sentence or that statement in itself would be incredibly good, good news. I mean, the fact that Jesus is actually saying to the Pharisees, look, there are many, many sins. But if a person is willing to repent of their sins, willing to confess that they are sinful people and come before God, then those sins can be forgiven. And it's interesting that Jesus in this verse is probably saying that blasphemy ranks as one of the higher sins because obviously blasphemy would be speaking ill of God or using the Lord's name in vain. But he carries on in verse 29 to say this, all these sins can be forgiven, including blasphemy, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. It is an eternal sin. And this verse leaves many of us scratching our heads from time to time. Some of us are asking the question, you know, how do I know if I have committed the unforgivable sin? Because there's nothing more depressing than trying to live your life wondering whether God is going to forgive you or not. Now, I'll come and answer that in a, in a moment. But um, the commentator George Knight, when he reflects on this, says that the issue of which spirit stood behind Jesus' ministry was not a minor issue at all. It was a major, major issue because the Pharisees were claiming that Jesus operated on the basis of satanic power. That's how they explained away all his miracles. I guess a simple way of um, putting this is that when we ascribe to the enemy, to Satan, the devil, the power of God, we are then blaspheming against God. So we're basically saying all the work that we are seeing that's good and miraculous and helpful and, and bringing about change, when we are associating that with the devil instead of God, then we are blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Now, many a sensitive person, like perhaps you or I, would say, well, how do I know that I have not already committed the unpardonable sin? And the answer is quite short and simple, really. The fact that you or I may be worrying about this topic is the surest indication that we've not committed that ultimate sin. A gentleman by the name of Walter Vessel says this, um, that the unpardonable sin is not an isolated act, but a settled condition of the soul. So the person who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit is the one who constantly rejects God who is prompted through the Spirit of God to turn from their ways, to turn to Christ, 
but is constantly in this place of saying, I won't believe it, I refuse to believe it, and in doing so, then turns to, um, to the enemy, turns to the opposite camp, as it were. And so this, for us, is something, and if, certainly if you're listening today, I would say don't stress about whether you've committed the unpardonable sin, because more than likely, you have not at all. In fact, I want to say probably you haven't at all. The fact that you are still wanting God to move in your life through the power of the Spirit, the fact that you are accrediting your salvation to Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit means that you have been willing enough to humble yourself and, and recognize your need of God. The person who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit is the one who then says, no, I won't, I won't believe in God's work in my life. I refuse to see it as the work of God. And then what happens is that person then leaves no room for God to work or to change in their lives. Now, I have another quote um, from another commentator, J.C. Ryle, and this is what I, it's quite a long quote, but I, let me just read it because it will help us try and figure this out. This is quite a, a complex issue, and um, I want to maybe leave it with the experts because I feel I'm fumbling a little bit with this, but he says this, we may lay it down as nearly certain that those who are troubled with fears that they have sinned the unpardonable sin are the very people who have not sinned it. The very fact that they are afraid and anxious about it is the strongest possible evidence in their favor. It is far more probable that the general marks of such a person will be utter hardness of conscience, a seared heart, an absence of any feeling, a thorough insensitivity to spiritual concern. Now this person, Jesus is saying, is the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, leaves no room for God to work in their heart. I kind of think of a person like Pharaoh in this, where as many times as God prompted him through Moses and Aaron, he kept hardening his heart, hardening his heart. And I think this comes from obviously pride and so on. But if we refuse to see Jesus and the work of Jesus in our lives, then we are beginning to border on that unforgivable sin. And then verse 30 kind of sums it up, but actually gives us a nice conclusion. It says, Jesus told them this, because they were saying that he had an evil spirit. So what the Pharisees were saying was that the Son of God, the Messiah, was filled with the devil. And that, even when they were prompted with the truth, even when they were confronted with the fact that this was a lie, many of them refused to believe that. And so, friends, as we come to the end of today, I know that I've probably left a lot more questions needing answers than, than having answered the questions for you. But um, just be rest assured that it is only those people that have the deliberate ongoing rejection of the work of the Spirit or even the, even the rejection of God himself that are then going to be faced with this particular issue. The religious leaders accused Jesus of blasphemy, um, but ironically they were the ones guilty when they looked at Jesus in the face and they accused him of being possessed by the devil. So I encourage you to do some of your own digging around and reading. Um, there's some wonderful commentaries on it. 
it's, it's a quite a complex issue, but I pray that um, you've been able to make a little bit more sense of it today. So come, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your scriptures, although sometimes they are hard and difficult to understand. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you'll give us deeper insight today into what your family meant when they said that you were out of your mind. And also, Lord God, about the issue of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Lord, may we continue to hold fast to you and to trust in your spirit as you prompt us, as you lead us, and as you guide us into all truth. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, God bless you. Have a wonderful week. And let me know if you find any interesting things about this whole topic. I would love to hear some feedback from you. Take care. Bye-bye.